Yeah. Okay, we're here live. Um, <laughs> live now, but won't be live in when I post this. Uh, with Paul Valente from CPS. This is session twenty-two Ooh. of this should work, um, and I'm excited to have Paul on and talk about the stuff he does at CPS as well as um, a lot of the other uh, projects and and things that he he works on outside. So, um, Paul did uh, and and oh, and just to be clear, Paul is the Facility Automation Architect and Delivery <laughs> Manager for CPS, which we're going to have to unpack in a second. Paul, is there anything that you want to add to that before we unpack what that title means? It's a mouthful in and of itself. I mean, uh, I uh, yeah. well, let's unpack and then I can give you the uh, the joke that I commonly use with, uh, with when I say the title. So okay. I don't know. Do you want to lead with uh, okay. with that? What, what do you think it means if, if you're listening? What do I think it means? Yeah. Well, I, that's cheating because I've already seen some of what it means. Right? Well, like, do you want me to explain how we how we sort of came up with that title? Here's here's what I I understand. You have facilities mm-hmm. that are, are all throughout schools, basically, and other buildings. I'm sure mm-hmm. that are essentially nodes, mm-hmm. and those nodes have systems that are linked to you and whatever systems you're using in such a way that you can automate and control those things for. I don't know, increased efficiencies um, to address capacity, things of that nature. But I just use a whole bunch of words that probably most people don't care about. So how did you arrive at that title? And is that accurate or what else can we add to that? Well, no, actually, you did a really good job of sort of uh, breaking it down. Um, I am the, the, the field that I'm, I'm currently in. I'm on the IT side of the building automation or building management um, side of the facilities. Uh, traditionally, it's been a facilities run sort of effort. Um, when you look at like the enterprise space, but on um, the CPS side, uh, we felt from the IT side that we needed to take over and uh, have and bring governance and oversight into these management systems. Uh, so these systems can control uh, lighting, uh, heating, cooling, um, solar, uh, pool heaters, uh, various most much much of the non-sexy things that you would think of uh, when, when you come with come with a building. So um, usually I introduce myself as I'm the facility automation architect and delivery manager, otherwise known as the BAS guy, uh, BAS short for building automation. And the, right. joke, the joke that I like to say to people is, you know, normally when somebody walks into a club, they try to make it rain. I try to make it temperate. So. <laughs> now, there are a couple of things I want to ask you about in there. Um, sure. But- but I guess the first thing that comes to mind too is is that, and this kind of relates to the thought cotton badges in a way that we you know we can talk about later, but that we met about, mm-hmm. um, is that when we put these uh, electronic badges out and we have people wear them, it almost feels like we're turning the people into things in the Internet of Things, yep. um, because they're all connected. And it seems like when you're talking about buildings, you're almost it, like the building is almost a thing, in your Internet of Things, mm-hmm. and. It is, it, it is turning a, a, a physical thing that has these interconnected systems into it, into a, not just into a digital physical thing is what, what are the, well, uh, it, the, yeah. the, the building is less of a thing and more of a container of things. So the people yeah. are still the things in the building and people largely don't realize that modern building automation systems. Like if you look at like retail or corporate America, aren't just, even though they're there to monitor heating and cooling, 
really track people themselves and other items within the building. You go into medical and um, the BAS systems that are there have a lot of uh, tie-in back with asset management as well. So you're moving various different medical equipment around and that sort of keeps track through that building automation system, building management system of where that asset is, where people are, you know, with that. You can use that then to balance the building when you're talking about heating and cooling needs, because you might need more heating in one side where you have more more density of, of folks. And then you were to expand into retail, for instance, pretty much any of the major retail spaces uh, that you walk into are mostly arranged around the same same sort of way. You know, you go into the the big box stores, they have a, a similar arrangement because what they do is they track people based on heat signature and radio wave uh, emittance uh, from the various portable devices. So they know sort of where you trend and then correlate that against what you're actually purchasing. So that way they can then stock items in various different spots and things like that. So it, it's, you know, very big brother, brother um, you know, when, when we start talking about it. And especially nowadays, we're in CPS, we're, we're engaging more in energy efficiency projects. Um, sure. So LED lighting, you're probably familiar, like everybody's going out and buying LED lights. So it used to be compact fluorescence, but now it's LED. Uh, but when you get into the enterprise space with LED lighting, um, included in the ballast that you're retrofitting are sensors. And these sensors capture, yeah. you know, occupancy, heat signature, uh, Bluetooth, um, you know, energy, and various other things like that. Uh, so it's, it's a lot more data that people really don't typically associate, um, you know, with mm-hmm. uh, to, to the space. So it's interesting that way. So I, when I used to work at a, a company um, called MapR, which I guess just recently got bought out, um, but anyways, it was a big data company, and mm-hmm. one of the things that MapR would, you know, essentially target is getting people to collect as much information as possible, whether or not they knew what to do with that data at any specific mm-hmm. point in time. And I know you've got some ideas about, you know, what what might be done or what could be done with some of the information that you're collecting. And but this is strictly from a I guess this is strictly from a personal curiosity standpoint. Like, what is it that you um, uh, what potentials are being lost that could be found? What, what are some data points that you could do something with that, you know, we just kind of lose right now or that we don't we don't pursue? Well, good, good question. Um, it's actually something that I'm working on right now. So uh, part of the process that I'm going through is modernizing our district. So uh, taking our servers, which have traditionally been housed at our schools, uh, centralizing them in our enterprise data center. So that way we can then have visibility over multiple sites instead of onesie, twosie kind of thing um, in standardization around platform. Now with that, um, you can glean a lot more data from the actual operation of the building. So um, you know, uh, how much your, your energy utility uh, spend is at each of those sites. But the challenge that we run into, um, uh, us as an organization, so you alluded to our size earlier, where we have 1,200 buildings uh, scattered around uh, the city of Chicago, about 650-ish schools when you factor in charters. So good good amount of, uh, of buildings. Um, the, the challenge for, for us and other large organizations is taking all of that data and then rationalize well sanitizing it normalizing it for weather conditions when we're talking on the building side of things um and then uh being able to use that for predictive modeling so that we can do hedge purchasing of energy uh, commodities or for um smart building design uh and that and and we can collect a lot of that data but there doesn't really exist a number of to- a, a tool or tools uh, out there 
to be able to to take all that in and provide that sort of uh, quote unquote single pane of glass. I, I hate that term, right. but uh, I prefer to use the dashboard of dashboard essentially. Sure. Um, so there, there's a lot of a lot of data that's being collected, but not a lot of data that's being used properly. Um, yeah. I've, I've been working with a number of different vendors like uh, Intel and um, and Microsoft in order to look at possibilities of leveraging their their cloud uh, provide their their cloud storage um, as well as their like Microsoft's Power BI in order to be able to intake that data and then visualize it um, and, and and provide meaningful views to uh, the people who are operating the buildings and managing the buildings uh, for for what they're particularly looking at. It. But the mm. the unique challenge that you run into is figuring out sort of what that what is meaningful to people. Uh, and th this has been the biggest challenge that I've run into is you, you ask anybody in facilities and be like, I want to, I want to, I want a dashboard. I want the, I want to have this thing. It's like, okay, well, what data points do you want to track? I don't know. Right. You know, and then it's like, what do you mean you don't know? I'm like, well, you know, what, what, what's important to you? I don't really know what's important. And, so, and that's the challenge that you, you get is like right. trying to extract and extrapolate what they want. So it ends up being, you're building something that you think would be leveraged for them and right. it, it, for, for myself what we're doing is building out um, an energy utility dashboard where we can collect uh, pow uh, our power for both uh, gas and electric uh, our water consumption and our waste consumption data uh, normalize that for weather and then um, be able to break it down based on square foot and uh, occupancy at the building and what that will do uh, from that is be able to quantify what our cost is per square foot with uh, per occupant at the particular site in order to gauge the effectiveness of uh, energy incentive projects. So if sure. we do, do LED lighting, are we seeing a return on investment? Everybody right. ar argues, yeah, you should, but are we truly seeing that? Um, yeah. You know, and are we able to quantify that? And then you know, the same same thing goes with. Eventually, when we get to LED lighting efficiencies where we have these additional sensors, my hope is to be able to get to a point in a number of years where we'll be able to do um, smart scheduling of buildings, where okay. you'll be able to know sort of generally throughout the course of a week, so we're schools, so you know, generally from six to six thereabouts is when, we're, when our buildings are occupied, see the flow of the children and the staff members through the building, to then be able to make predictions on where you'll have different loads in the building to then preheat or pre-cool those particular sites. So that way it's, it's ready for occupancy instead of having it to ramp up. So then you so, can extract further savings. So let me ask you, because um, and, and the reason why I'm so interested in this is because a lot of the people that we interview for, mm -hmm. um, we, I, interview for this <laughs> podcast, um, there is no we, right? Why, why say we when there's only one person? It makes it, yeah. Um, is is that we often I often focus on the or the interviews that we do um, I do with people often focus on the physical side of things that they're making. Mm -hmm. um, but what's really interesting is um, the convergence of physical things with digital things mm -hmm. um, that creates almost this imperceptible. It's like an iceberg where the tip of the iceberg is is farther under the water than it is above. And so you may have an object like um, you know, your LED lights that appear only to be lights, but they have a multitude of sensors on them that create that kind of iceberg effect underneath where people don't see things happening, There's but there are implicit interactions happening, mm -hmm. right? 
And so the objects around us, whether it's our lighting or other systems in a building or, you know, just computers and in, you know, everyday objects create these like implicit undercurrents that we don't see, but that are there to affect our behavior in some way. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so I, I wonder if you've noticed how, because, yeah, now we're talking about um preparing a room for people's use, Mm -hmm. you know, what does that do for how people navigate space? Does that increase use of the space? Does that change how people behave? That's very fascinating because we're talking about behavioral kind Mm -hmm. of changes that we don't, we do not perceive like in any direct way. And well, yeah, it's, it's both perceived and, um, and sort of the things that you're, you're not, you're not thinking about, but it, it affects the way that you're, you're using the space. An interesting example I'll give you is um, in the building that I'm at, I'm in a, our Bridgeport facility, we're putting a building automation system in here. So um, right now the space exists where we have just thermostats scattered throughout. And we're in the process of putting in this building automation system, um, connect, putting all the sensors and everything like that in. And the sensors that we chose being in a, uh, an executive office, essentially, so it's, there are no children in this place, um, is we put uh, these sensors on the wall that have a digital readout of the current temperature. Now you would think, okay, well, that's fine. And then you have an up and down button uh, in order to adjust that space temperature for that space, which you know you wouldn't think anything of. The problem is with when you have a lot of people in an office building and they can actually see on a regular basis what the temperature is, they, that affects the way they think about the temperature in the space. So if it's normally 70 degrees and they don't know that it's 70 degrees um, in, the, in that space, they might be fine and adequate. But their, their mind, if they see it 72, might think, oh, associate 72 with being too hot or too cold. Um, and then they, they start grumbling and complaining because they have visibility into that. One, sure. one way that we, we sort of trick users, uh, if we choose to go down that path, is if we put those sensors into a place, um, we allow them the ability to tap the button up or down to you know raise or lower the heating or cooling or, or per, the, per, give them the perception that they're raising and lowering um, the heating or cooling at that space. But in reality, we can just have that programmed where it'll artificially raise that temperature on the display, but not actually do anything for the particular space. So you can you can do that, or like what we'll do is um, in some cases allow them to to do that, and it'll only set it for an hour, you know, and slightly raise it or slightly lower it. And they might tap right. it four or five times, thinking it'll be four or five degrees higher, but in reality, it'll only go one degree, and it'll only stay in there for an hour. Um, so that's that's one example, and we've. We've got, we, we ended up pulling all those sensors out and replaced them all with ones that don't have digital displays because we, in the, the second day of having those sensors on the wall, uh, we received close to 20 complaints about heating and cooling where, oh, wow. yeah, traditionally this building, uh, nobody, I mean, people grumble about the, you know, too hot or too cold, but now that they mm-hmm. had visibility into what it, what the temperature actually was there that just opened the floodgates. And so it was like, nope, don't want to deal with that. The building engineer's like, I don't want, you know, can we change those out, get rid of those displays? Now, so that that's one example. It's of you know, the, the perceived or unperceived, you know, kind of effect of uh, visibility of that data uh, that you have with that. The, the other thing that we traditionally see is the, when at the school side, 
we don't have uh, sensors that have a digital readout on it. We have what's called a flat plate. So it's a stainless steel flat plate and on the back of it is a 10,000 K thermostat. Um, and that gives the, the reading to the school. But you have all of the people who bring to the space their expectation of what the temperature should be. So our range of what we have is between 68 and 73 degrees. That's the relative okay. comfort. We aim for about 70, um, you know, at, in, in any of the space, because that's the acceptable sort of temperature range. But you have people who like it hotter or like it colder. And you would think that um, they would they would care about other people, but they, they care a lot about their their own sort of comfort there. And they want it. Then right. they, they start lambasting the, uh, the person on yeah. the side of like, I want it hotter or I want it colder. Not giving any mind to what it actually costs to provide that and right well we're, what we're trying to do is gather what that cost is um so that way we can make the cost visible to our staff members as well as our administration because uh, then they can start associating the cost to run that site per square foot and then that can then change the hearts and minds of people hmm. otherwise what we do is at, at a lot of our schools they'll run uh, what's called wide open um, so just 24 seven running the, the heating, cooling, you know, wasting, uh, utilities, uh, because they just want it to be cool, uh, when they walk in the building, um, want right. it to be warm when they, you know, things like that. So well, one of the things there's, a there's this podcast called 99% invisible. It's like a design podcast. And they had an episode in the last couple of weeks where, um, one of the things that it touched on was that the generally accepted range of temperatures in a building has to do with how comfortable a man in a suit feels. Mm. So apparently the, the temperature range is based around a man who typically runs hotter mm -hmm. in a suit mm -hmm. who would also typically run hotter. It's just like, I, I'm not asking for a comment here. It's just as you're talking about these things and generally accepted temperatures and you know the information that we have available and things like that. You know, there are all sorts of undercurrents contributing to how we design the spaces that we navigate and how that affects us and, and specific groups of people, too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So it, yeah. It, it's interesting that it's funny because a colleague and I were just chatting about suits and, and the wearing of suits at, at lunch uh, earlier today. Uh, yeah. And how, you know, we're. I don't wear a suit on a regular basis. I, I really deplore having to put on a suit because I, I, I don't like all the layers <laughs> and everything. Um, yeah. But it, it, at our, our flagship location at 42 West Madison, um, it's always kept uh, a little on the cooler side because more often than not, senior leadership is there wearing their suits. Uh, you know, So that's yeah. to adjust for those folks or the people who are wearing the very professional um, attire. Um, I like to be yeah. in jeans and a, a t-shirt for all intents and purposes. You know? All right. So. Yeah. Okay. So we skipped over the first part where I wanted to ask you what you're personally working on. So I think we're going to have, we're going to have to go back to that sure. now. And then I also want to talk about, um, you know, the hacker conference that we met at ThoughtCon. I want to talk about your work with, um, with CPS on tech talk, Google Palooza, all the makerspace stuff that you're all doing, sure. all that cool stuff. But let's start with what, what is something that you are working on right now, just for, just for yourself, something that's, you know, like I told you before we got started recording, there are a lot of things that most of the people on this podcast have in common. And, and one of them is they tend to do things for other people more than they do for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I'll have to explore that sometime. But right now, <laughs> what I want to hear is what are you what are you working on um, uh, that's that's just for you? Good question. Um, 
something you might not know about me is I'm a, um, a very large uh, retro video game uh, collector. Uh, oh yeah <laughs> i have uh, All right. a very large collection of uh fully legitimate um uh you know video games i i wink i say right. fully legitimate but uh <laughs> um what i've been currently working on um is going through and auditing them um i'm a stickler for um uh, hierarchy and organization uh when it comes to my digital files so i have sure. this uh, 10 terabyte drive filled with all of my collection on it of various things. And it's going through and auditing all of that and then setting up a, um, what they call a 10 foot UI. Uh, so that way I can connect my, uh, arcade sticks to, uh, to my television. Uh, that's where I, where I emulate from or, or play games from, um, in order to have that arcade experience. Um, the thing that, Ever since I set foot in an arcade back when I was a little child, I've always wanted to have an arcade. Um, I got, you know, just tons of arcade cabinets, and I, I don't have the the physical space to be able to warehouse this. I live in the city of Chicago, and even though I have a right. decent sized house, and it's just space, and then also the wife acceptance factor is pretty low on, on that. <laughs> sure. So I found a, sort of a happy medium of, uh, of using uh, emulation, and uh, so that's my current project. I've been working on this for years uh, and I have a tremendous amount of stuff that I have to go through and, and audit and organize. And then, then I come up with a new strategy and then I find out uh, I'm missing box art for certain games and I'm missing user manuals for certain things. So now I have a complete, I have my, my collection of all of my games. I have all the box art. I have all the marquees. I have all the original cabinet art. Um, all of the manuals as well as the repair manuals for the arcades digitally scanned from a variety of different repositories that I've gotten, um, as well as all the different hacks of the different games that uh, I played. So, oh, wow. Yeah, pretty okay. extensive collection of, of things. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you and I approach um, information, um, information organization from almost two completely divergent um, uh, ways. Okay. I, I am a bigger fan of unstructured information with metadata yeah. that I can perform queries on um, and just kind of like find my way through my stuff based on feelings that I remember and sure. things like that. You know? um, but there's obviously another like more prevalent, quite frankly, way of organizing things, which is, you know, like this structure. I wonder, is this a way that it, it is I always like tying some of these things back into what we were talking, mm -hmm. you know, other things we're talking about. And it seems like mm -hmm. building automation <laughs> and a, an inclination towards organization of mm -hmm. things in a hierarchical structure oh, could yes. potentially go hand in hand. Yeah, no, no, Maybe it, not. it completely uh, goes hand in hand. Uh, it's <laughs> my, it's I have calls with all the vendors that I deal with that, that assist us on, on this thing. And, and, uh, we have to review our different systems that we implement and everything and, and go through the logistics of like how we're going to organize and display and, and sort everything. And I'm a stickler. Like if there's a, you know, a name, the naming convention we typically use is we have a, a five digit facility identifier, this numeric digit, then a space, then a hyphen, then a space, and then what's called the school short name. Now the vendors, you know, are, going through the doing project, they might fat finger something and forget a space. I will sit there and obsess over that space being missed uh, in the name of something. Uh, just I'll sit there and stew on it for, for a long while. 
and it's just it, it's just in my in my mind yeah. and, and that's the same level of, of what I do when I when I go through and organize all of all of my my structure of all my games and, and various other things that I organize yeah it, it keeps that that keeps me sane keeping things organized and having it in a convention that I I, I find visibly right. um, nice to look at do you have so here's um, I had a conversation with some of my colleagues at DePaul recently where we talked about um, the the ways it was a couple people from our physics department and then it was me and I'm in the College of Computing and Digital Media. So, uh, and I, I teach design, which is a whole like its own thing um, in some ways. And we had this conversation about how, so when I approach a problem, I, lo- I look, for, I go from 10 miles up and then begin working downward. Whereas a physicist, there was a book called The Quark and the Jaguar, it was written by a Nobel Prize winning physicist. And he describes it as, and he doesn't mean this in a pejorative sense, he means this in this is how physics works. Thinking of things, reductively what are the base components and then how do we build up from those components rather than mm-hmm. looking downward and it seems to me organizationally inclined people this organizational inclination is a kind of how do you how do i how do i organize this stuff down to the the most basic components in such a way that i can you know that everything kind of builds up towards some some greater whole and mm-hmm. so i want to i don't i don't know if i'm you can't if you have something to say about that, go ahead. Or if that's fair or not, but then I think that's a it might be a, an interesting way to leapfrog into other things. But first, is that f- close? Fair? Uh, it. <laughs> I'm interested. Mean, I think I think I think it's actually a mixture of both both ways. Sure. Um, like for 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 what I'm doing is, um, in my building automation system, building management system restructuring, it's actually a mixture of both because you. From an ins- inf- if you're building out infrastructure, you have to have know all of the base pieces as well as know know what they reduce down to, right. um, but then have that vertical scale of all of those items that you need to to hit along the way because that's sort of the common thing that you're going to be doing. Um, what I'm doing in building animation is not anything different than you know if you're if you're restructuring a bunch of servers or you're. Right doing anything else in, in IT, you have in any enterprise organization, you're going to have this, this vertical hierarchy um, that you you have various steps that you have to, to meet along the way. Uh, so basically just taking that sort of hierarchy, but then also taking some of the reduction of some of these base components down and then working to see where it fits in that hierarchy and then where you need to sort of uh, right. jump a little bit. So I guess it's sort of the combination of both of those, th- both of those um, ideas. Okay. Okay. So then I think this works. Okay. So then the couple other things that I wanted to talk about sure. are, um, you know, your work with tech talk and Google blues. I, I know those are two separate things right now. So maybe we'll get some, you can tell us about that. Um, mm-hmm. the maker working group stuff, if you can talk about that at all, I don't even know. Um, sure. and then, and then, uh, you know, a hacker event where we met. And I think maybe we start with the hacker event because I think that connects most to this idea of, because the people there are, are, are the, you know, the talks that they give at events like these are, are wide ranging and they, mm-hmm. they're from people who think either incredibly analytically about things or, or and in addition to that, then there are people who are very like whimsical in their nature of hacking, right? Mm-hmm. And, and both have uh, precise applications that, and, and you, you know, uh, utilities, but why don't you talk? Let's talk a little bit about what's what is ThoughtCon. I'm sure some of the, a lot of 
people who listen to this already know, but, and then what, uh, why do you go, why do you go to, to the events? Sure. Well, uh, ThoughtCon, for people who don't know, is I think the second largest uh, hacker conference in the United States. Uh, if, I'm, if you're keeping me it honest here. Right. Yeah, it's, it's uh, we just finished our 10th year. Um, and so that was that was uh, a huge thing. I, I've been going since, let's say like the fourth year uh, to ThoughtCon. Um, the reason I go is uh, back when I started going to that, I was the... Uh, the person responsible for uh, the Windows experience here in uh, here in the district. So I designed uh, the Windows distribution that we we push out to the to the district. And I was always keen on um, I'm sort of a inquisitive person by nature. So I'm on a variety of different committees here in CPS, but I'm um, also on the InfoSec team. And so I always be curious about where we can have um, increased efficiency from a security vantage point. So where, where, what are the common hacks that are coming out or the new things that people are starting to talk about? And then are we vulnerable? And then if we are, how can we patch that or mitigate against that, that kind of attack? And then trying to be on the cusp of what is new in the information security sort of landscape um, and being able to protect ourselves, the organization, um, from, you know, from any kind of attack or um, you know, whatever that, that comes at us. Uh, so from, from that vantage point, that's what that and plus, I've been, you know, in sort of the hacker space for, well, geez, probably since I was about 15 or so, uh, when I when I've got my first copy of 2600 sure. and, you know, was reading through that and huh. not knowing much about, um, not knowing much about anything, you know, and just sort of enamored looking at the words there, uh, but not really understanding really much about uh, programming or anything at that, but really piquing my interest in and sticking with it. And now with the rise of Google and everything, you can you can research whatever you want on a whim versus having to go to the library all the time. So uh, that right. I really wanted to go to where there were folks of like mind, um, you know, who thought about hacking and not being a negative kind of a thing, because it always has this sort of negative connotation being sort of positive, like exploration into right. what is possible. Um, from the business case, using from right. what I got from from those talks of what could be adapted as to an attack for from our infosec kind of hat uh, when I put that on, but then from my own curiosity, just what are people doing? You know, I know why is it interesting and like because you, you, there's yeah. just if you for the audience for the folks who've never been, you should go to ThoughtCon. It's like stuff that right. you would never expect would be talked about and in different ways of. Uh, thinking about things. So like a couple of years ago, they had, uh, I think it was like hacking Nazis or something like that. It was a, like an hour long talk and it was an exploration of tracking yeah. uh, white supremacists through Bitcoin transactions and, and this whole thing. And it, this one that still sticks with me. It was just a phenomenal presentation that the, the people gave, but it's just all, all sorts of stuff that you wouldn't normally think about uh, that, that are discussed there and presented. Um, but I, I, I forget. So yeah, go ahead. No, you, you know, I didn't mean to cut you off, but you can finish your thought. I, I just, you said a lot of things that I, uh, I think are, are really interesting. Well, I just wanted to circle back with how we met. Um, and right. I think it was three or four years ago. Um, I, mm -hmm. I was stumbling around with some friends of mine uh, as we're there. And um, 
trying very poorly to hack the badge. Um, not necessarily in my, my wheelhouse, but I, I think I had like a faulty battery connector or something like that. And, uh, and I went to the, the support desk and, and you, you happened to be managing it. And we were, we ended up chatting about the badge and fixing my problem with that. And then just talking about a little couple little hints and, and tricks about um, how to hack it and get into it and sort of the, the whole idea behind it. And then I think you might've asked me like, what do I do? Or I asked you what you did and we just yeah. started to connect, you know, that way. So yeah and the rest is history so there's there's something that's really interesting about this though to me and because we've 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 kind of touched on three things that almost form like this this triad of um what did you call it hacking people look at it as i forget subverting or questioning well, it's sort of a negative connotation you know, right. like everybody has sort of this like you, you hear like oh this hacker did something and it's like well it's always the negative right. that everybody focuses on with hacking versus the positive aspect of right. it. Right. Like what are the and sort of the exploration. Well, how can we yeah. how can we play with this? So there's so I, I draw a direct line between that in, in a way of as a way of thinking and um, games, right? Playfulness, but playfulness is a way to explore like social and cultural things in a way that it, depending on the game you play of course but but in a way where you're playing with boundaries and rules as well and hacker spaces and maker spaces which do that in the physical realm so if you think of hacking like a, a place like thoughtcon purely digital you're you're playing with digital things which may be connected to things in the physical world yes but play is is these invisible systems around us and then maker space hacker space things are these physical things around us. And all of them have to do with, it, it seems to me that almost every person, if not every person that I've interviewed for this, has an interest in all three of these things because they are all different ways of questioning the, what, the systems around you. Political, cultural, digital, or physical. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I find that fascinating, especially because you were talking about retro games before in your retro game collection. So there's obviously... You know, play is important. Hacking is important. Um, but then you've got this, the, you know, CPS is working on, on, on building makerspaces and you've got um, Tech Talk and, and Google Palooza and all of these other things. And those seem to me like logical connections into teaching people how to understand these systems, whether they're the physical ones or digital ones. I wonder if you could talk a little bit. I'm done talking now. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, one or both of those things or how they fit into that overall picture or, 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 or anything. Well, sure. But before I do that, I should yeah. give some backstory to sort of clarify. Uh, so I used to be a teacher. So I taught for uh, almost 12 years at the, in the charter schools before I, uh, that was sort of like an offshoot of CPS, uh, right. primarily dropout retrieval, um, taught math and computer science at the high school level. And I've always loved well actually in the beginning i didn't like teaching but i grew to love it and really enjoyed teaching as well as the spread of knowledge um then moved into for because i was in charters which didn't pay that well and had crappy benefits into cps which had much better benefits and paid slightly better um you know just to have some professional growth and then started to work up the advantage of working on the it side so that way i can affect change on a grander scale so that's sort of my nickel tour of like why i'm doing what i'm doing is 
um, at the school level, you can affect change to your, your class or to your group of classes that you, you deal with. I wanted to do it on a grander scale and affect it for an entire district or an entire state or, you know, whatever. Right. Um, and, and I felt like I can move up and then provide that, that kind of service. So to that, to that end, when I was, when I first made my, um, the move over to CPS, I was what's was called a, a technology coordinator. So that's a position that's at a school. It's a, sort of an at-will employee that the school hires to do break-fix work on um, the technology that's there. You know, fix the computers, set up, you know, AV equipment, you know, do all the grunt work and, and things like that, sort of the, the uh, backstage kind of, kind of work. Um, but I realized when I when I took the job about a, a week afterwards that there's actually no support at all for new technology coordinators when they came into the district. There's no onboarding. You're just sort of given the keys to uh, some office that the principal <laughs> gives you, and it's like figure it out. Right. Um, so to that end, when it was like six months of you know just trying to figure out what are all the supports and resources and everything that are available to techos, and I started documenting a lot of that uh, and uh, putting it together just so I had a, I had this massive OneNote folder uh, with you know all of my my notes on like, these are the people in the help desk and I was creating my own um, org chart because there's no published org chart for sure. uh, everything because I wanted to know who these people were who reported to who in case somebody was you know a, a, an ass to you when they're talking to you on the phone sure. is this somebody of importance or not um, so it's sort of social hacking or social engineering to some degree on, on that. Um, but then started like reaching out to just everybody and saying, Hey, I'm a tech coordinator at this school and I need assistance. Who can I talk to? And then slowly gathering more data. Now I say this all because I was collecting all this data and then realized that we had an in, a really crappy internal message board. And there happened to be a subsection of it that was dedicated to tech coordinators. Ended up being more of like a bitching session like place where people just go and complain about whatever yeah but i started making connections there with some of the other tech coordinators and i say hey you know if you guys are interested in learning about what i found out you know i'll, I'll do these informal trainings um you know and i'd host them at my school and i'd have 20 or 30 tech coordinators and it's just purely re relaying the knowledge that that i collected well that made its way up to senior leadership on the it side and um, one thing led to another, and then I had formal people from CPS that were coming out to help facilitate the, the quote-unquote training, um, and that started our TechCo trainings. At mm. the same time, there's TechTalk. Uh, TechTalk is to fulfill a contract requirement for our technology coordinators. So this gets really contract language-wise, but there's our, our contract is for the teachers and the technology coordinators. Anybody school-based, it's like three or four hundred pages. It's this massive contract document. Technology coordinators have a very unique position where their position is uh, the description is incredibly vague. It's basically you can lift fifty pounds, you have an undergraduate degree of some kind, and that's about it. I mean, it's a little bit more verbose than that, but it's it's yeah. pretty general. But there is a requirement in there that they have one district provided uh, professional development a year. And that's what Tech Talk is. It's the, the uh. district's requirement to provide a technology PD to these, these folks. Well, what it, it, it started that many, many, many moons ago. But what it is, uh, what it's been since I've been with the organization as well as through current, is a way of showcasing um, educators as well as district personnel with. Uh, the latest and greatest of what they're doing and what's exciting and creative. And we've, um, over the years, have tried to incorporate more of the teaching and learning folks into this to have it be less super focused on 
you know, purely looking at computers and things like that from the vendor perspective, but having right. you know a lot more technology and curriculum um, vendors coming in to, to showcase like what they're doing, as well as teachers talking about you know curriculum and pedagogy and how they're implementing it with uh, with technology in the classroom space and how that's affecting change and what new and exciting things that they're doing. And uh, it's it's one of our largest um, events that we have uh, year over year. I think you've you've been to you've been to one. You were the, the keynote speaker. Uh, well, yeah. I was, I was, <laughs> right. Uh, my corporeal self, my, my <laughs> digital self, was on a screen. I was caught. Yeah. I'd, uh, uh, I'd driven into uh, where would that be? Louisville yeah. to fly into Chicago. And there was a, when I got to the airport and I got to the checkout um, uh, booth, I started fiddling with my phone. You know, I'd been using it as a GPS coordinator up until that point. Yeah. And I started fiddling with my phone. And so you check your email as you do. And um, whether or not that's good. But anyways, you know, I'm flipping through my emails and I saw a message from Southwest Airlines that my flight had been canceled some sometime in mid-transit from where I was at. It was like an hour, hour and a half drive. So I'd driven all the way from like the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, and it's probably like three in the morning. The streets are, you know, deer, everything jumping out in front of you. Got into Louisville. I was like, finally, I'm there. And then I got back in the car and raced back so that we could digitally connect and do a, a keynote talk. Yeah. Um, piggybacked on my phone from the, the, the highest floor that I could find in the house that we were in just in case the reception was poor, which yeah. I don't even know to this day how, how that went. Well, that was a uh, hack in and of itself right there. You know, <laughs> you know just thinking about it. Yeah, it's, it, it's just a way to make things work, right? Exactly. You know? Yeah. So, but this, yeah tech, tech Talk, though, for, for, for folks listening is, is a, I liken it to a, as close to a hacker conference as we can get uh, in the education space. Um, right. You know, and we, we want to keep pushing the boundaries with it by looking at things from like a maker's lens, as well as from a curriculum lens, as well as from a technology lens. And so we're merging all of that you know, together um, at, at this conference. And every year it's uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work to put on uh, the team that that assists putting it together. Uh, I volunteer uh, yearly and am doing tech support or registration or whatever it is or doing sessions in the past. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's really good. The other one that we do, um, uh, is Google Palooza, as you mentioned a few times. And that, and that yeah. one is, um, is similar in sense, uh, but it's since the district has gone Google five or six years ago, we, we, we adopted Google for all things email as well as like Google, the Google docs and, um, Google storage and all that kind of stuff, uh, district wide. It's a. It started out as sort of this promotional rah rah Google. Let's 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 talk about Google to being, okay. So we have all these tools. How do we use them? Um, and then what are the other tools that can integrate into that? And then how do you accomplish something better um, leveraging these tools and and various other trainings and, and such that way? So it's, right. it's a, lot of, a lot more hands on um, kind of thing versus you know sort of conceptually talking about ideas. Um, right. But it, it's it's well received. We have. Uh, 50 something thousand staff members, um, you know, within the district, uh, 360,000 students. So it's a lot of people. Um, we, yeah. we typically have about a thousand to, to 1200 or so that show up for Google Palooza yearly. So slowly yeah. we're making our way, I think, uh, showing people, 
what it all is and keeping them current and relevant with all the changes and everything. Hmm. You know what I think is interesting, uh, you know, and I'm thinking more about tech talk, I suppose, although I, I, I might be able to apply a Google Palooza about that kind of thing. And I, you know, this is probably something useful for other people in the education space is I've worked with large um, institutions. I won't say, get into specifics, but I've worked with large institutions on training certain employees on, on the new things that are happening, let's say. And, but, it, but it's only been for like a small subset of the population. And it seems like if you're trying to encourage everybody within your organization to be more playful in the way that they approach their craft and um, that they teach, it's it's not something that you can have for a small set of people. It seems like something like tech, your tech talk or everything else, it's it, then, it, it, you know, you didn't have to be explicit about it. It implicitly says, like, it's OK to experiment mm-hmm. with your curriculum, with the tools that you bring into your classroom. And I wonder if you guys track any of that or or or, or you know, get any qualitative data or, or talk just, you know, anecdotal stories of like, how does this affect how, how people think about um, how they teach? You know, teachers and educators think about how they teach. Well, so that's interesting you bring that up because th- this is my challenge that I have with working with the system that I do is we're from, from a former teacher's perspective. Um, I, I was on the track to go to be, uh, I was a lead teacher at the school that I was at um, and I wanted to become a national National Teacher Award or yeah, I'm familiar with what it's called. Yeah. yeah, and um, I started down that track, and it's uh, it seems like they want to try to capture and recognize people who are doing things that are out of the box. You know, being very very creative in sort of your instruction and how you're you're delivering and and packaging up your material and and, and presenting to the students and, and helping advance them. But they were incredibly restrictive. In, in how you had to document and 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 organize all that data, like almost to a fault. Like it was so, like so restrictive uh, or so so defined of like the the format in which you had to convey it and like the the how you had to document it and, and capture all of that that it didn't allow for that same level of creativity that was in the classroom for that presentation. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that same kind of thing is here in CPS. Um, partly because we're so massive, but they, we've gone to this whole common curriculum or whatever they're calling it nowadays. And it's just the same thing, like rebadged every five years, they come out with some new catchphrase and this is the new, this is the new curriculum. That's going to, it's going to revolutionize the world. And then 10 years later, this is the new one now, forget that other one, but it's the exact same thing. It's this, how do you compartmentalize and commoditize education in order to, suddenly you know find the thing that's going to make the kid advance two or three years and then rinse and repeat that versus focusing on the creativity of the educator and the support of the educator to help them be creative and be happy and uh, want to be there to be a teacher Um, right because i think everybody's going to have their own style and how they present material and how they interact with everybody else but i think districts of any scale and size are going to try to, you know, lock that down into these are the five things that you have to do. And you can be super creative, but you have to do these five things and you have to do it this way and then try to be creative with that. And then you're sort of, you know, kneecapped when you're, when you're doing that. So I don't know, it's it's an internal struggle. Um, 
with yeah. And it, but then on the other side, you know, I've told you about how 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 I like to organize like all my data and organize all my systems. Well, this is, this is, yeah, <laughs> like the polar opposite. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's like uh yeah. I mean, it, the internal the teacher in me, like you want to be really creative because ultimately when you're teaching you need to be able to differentiate your instruction to meet the needs of each and every student in the classroom because not everybody right. is exactly at the same level or, the, or understands things or processes things the same way and so you have to right. tailor your instruction to be able to to do that yeah. and then the same thing goes like with the, the whole the whole business with assessment I and mean, i could talk for hours on how i think standardized assessment yeah. is a bunch of crap because um, right. but it's uh you know it <laughs> It's really devoid from where my actual day-to-day job of organizing and, and you know, processing right. data. But it, and I think a lot of educators or people who've been in the education space recognize that and just sort of accept it as being like, if you're going to be in an education organization of any scale and size, you're going to have to accept some of that sort of compartmentalizing of it and start streamlining. Right. Um, and I, I hope that other people um, like myself try to subvert that the best they can, you know, within the organization. <laughs> right. Too much weight. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way of putting it, and that's uh, you know that's how I think a lot about what I do as well within a lot of different contexts. Um, but you're right. There, it seems like the core tension there is between hierarchical organization and creativity, and how do you marry? Um, how do you marry the need for some organization and to protect and, and the need to protect the institution versus the need for the institution to change um, w- with, you know, the needs of, of educators, which often involves giving them creative license to, to, to adapt on the fly rather than to follow well, both, policy. Yeah, both educators and students at the same time. I mean, right. I, there's always been that that uh, that byline for like the past ten or fifteen years that we should adjust schedules of school to like ten o'clock to allow kids to properly sleep because they go to bed later than adults and then you know wake up and do that. But then the adults who are teaching them want to start at seven in the morning and not start at ten and then get home at seven, you know that kind of thing. So it's right. there's that divide, and there's no perfect way of sort of slicing that um, and 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 coming up with it. But the the thing that's always been interesting, the thing that was explained to me a couple of years ago, and I forget who explained it, is as you move up an organization, the information that you provide that needs to go all the way to the top needs to get uh, cut in half every single time. So yes. you know, to your manager, you can give you know a couple page synopsis of what you're doing, and then you have to give a one pager to your, your director, and then a half page to your, your chief. And then if it goes beyond the chief level, then it's it's got to be a couple lines, you know. Right. I think the couple line thing for CPS and then as well as for like the mayor is, you know, increasing or decreasing of, of test scores is the common thing, increasing or decreasing of dropout rate, um, you know, and then possibly doing better on different things is what, you know, needs to come out at the very top. And they, I think they think about things in such a way where it's how do you, how do you get that, how do you get that end result in the easiest fashion? And I, I, I don't know. You know, I think that a lot of times it comes down, boils down to, we need to find this sort of packaged good that we can insert and, and use for everybody um, right. to, to, to get that. And it's yeah. various vendors sell it, yeah. but we've digressed quite a bit. No, that's okay. Cause it's a good jumping off point. And then I'm going to loop back to the makerspace things, because I think it fits quite well with makerspace things too. And one of the things that we talk about 
at our space here at DePaul, as well as with the industrial design degree that we have, is almost this linear nature of creation where you go from um, the creative side of things where you're tossing, you're, you're just bringing tons of information in and not really making too much sense of it, but you're, you're gathering data and then prototyping where you begin to whittle that data down into something that becomes like a usable thing. And then kind of what you're talking about is this scaling aspect where like, okay, you know, how does giving teachers creativity work at scale? Does that work for all 1500 buildings or do we have to, do we have to think of other things? You know, in, in my case, when we're talking about making objects, you're talking about material scale, right? So you're talking about how much are the materials going to cost? What is the practicality of using this particular thing? How long will it last? Um, but, but you're kind of thinking of the same things when you're talking about people, right? You're thinking about like, what is it going to cost? To, you know, what, what are what are the risks that we're going to institute by by um, giving teachers, um, you know, uh, free reign? And how do we mitigate some of those risks and so on and so forth? And that fits really well, I think, with the final component that we haven't really talked about too much yet, which is you know makerspaces at CPS, because I feel like makerspaces in particular are places where uh, teachers and students are given more free reign than in a traditional classroom setting to play with knowledge, to play with ideas and so forth. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on like how, how these, how you see these spaces transforming the schools that they're in, what the potential that they might hold for other schools is. And I think in particular, the places where they can be most beneficial, which are in, in, you know, lower income income areas where the realization that systems can be changed around you is, is incredibly powerful. Um, is is it like a is, a, is another interesting kind of jumping off point too? But um, I, I just said like five different things, so I'll let you talk and address whichever ones you want, and and go from there. Yeah, well, let me let me try to unpack a few things that way. So I mean, I I think a lot of what I was saying before about trying to be sort of subverse, subversive to a point is what lends itself into why I wanted to be a part of the makerspace sort of uh, part in CPS, because I see that as a path that you can express creativity. Uh, I mean, we keep reducing arts and various other uh, outlets where people can be creative. It used to be back when I was in high school, you can go to shop and then you had a variety of different types of shop classes and you had uh, drama clubs and you had you know very whatever kind of like thing that you wanted to do, you could do, um, you know, and I, I tended to, to delve more in the shop side of things. So that's what, what I like to do personally, yeah. but you know, various, like my wife on the other hand did then like print shop and then uh, various things in drama, but um, where then the makerspace in CPS, it, it runs the gamut. We're, we're very large. Um, even though we are a centralized system, we're very decentralized when it comes to actually what's going on in the schools, specifically when it comes to these sort of niche kind of things like a makerspace or a creative space or something like that. Um, so what we wanted to do as a group of us uh, got together, I got invited because I'm sort of the jack of all trades from, from IT yeah. and I, I deal a lot with the facilities team and assist them like with technology sort of planning and, and organization when it comes to uh, new construction. So I was sort of tagged into to being sort of this, the guy from IT to talk about technology and computers and whatnot um, in the makerspace thing. And, and what we've got to is 
the group of us internally, a lot of the teaching and learning folks, as well as a couple of people from facilities and a couple of people from IT and then now outside organizations like DePaul with yourself, you know, joining the fold um, is starting to uh, collect all this data and organize it uh, to be able to present um, all of the different possible adventures somebody can go on from, from a principal's perspective. Um, and the reason I say it, it's sort of like a choose your own adventure, uh, because there's, it depends on really the culture at the school yes. on what path you do, um, and the culture of the community and everything else. And like what, what actually that means to you, um, that we don't want to present a, a pre-can thing. Like this is the makerspace, go buy these things, use yeah. this curriculum and do this because that fails. Um, yeah. cause you might, might do it and then like, I don't like this. And then you abandon it. Um, we, we also don't want people to just, or commonly principals to say, I want a maker space. Let's go buy a bunch of 3d printers. And I think you used the analogy once of, uh, you know, you buy a bunch of 3d printers and then you, you unpack them all and then you break them all at the same time. And now yeah. you have a bunch of broken 3d printers with no <laughs> need to repair it. Whereas you yeah. should open one break that, repair it, and then rinse and repeat, and, and then slowly open the rest of them. Um, actually, I think that was Ray from Pumping Station 1 who said that. Uh, yeah, I use the analogy of the kitchen, right, where it would be as if you, you bought all of this, like you had somebody else buy all of the things for your kitchen for you without any knowledge, and then you walked in there and you're like, I don't use half of these things because I don't cook that kind of food, yeah. and I don't I don't need 10 different kinds of knives because I just want one, you know, it's... Yeah. It is a, you, you equip the space based on the culture that it should support. Exactly. And, yeah. 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 I mean, if I had to modify your analogy, it would be somebody else buys the kitchen equipment and my wife organizes it. And then I have right. to go into the space. And use it. <laughs> it's right. I have actually no idea where any of it is. And then um, somebody else tells you what to cook. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> perfect trifecta for everything that's right. wrong right there. Yeah. And, and so we wanted to, uh, various folks of us uh, have had experience in either makerspaces or a lot of experience in education. And we wanted to really come up with what is the, the, the best way for giving guidance where we're not owning that space. We're letting the space be owned by the community and the school providing professional guidance on that. And what we've yeah. done it over the course of about a year and a half to two years is putting together this large collection of things you should consider when you're thinking of a quote unquote makerspace. Uh, so coming at it from, you know, the financial standpoint to the, uh, the commodity standpoint, like how do you purchase um, the, the safety and security standpoint of things and uh, coming from it from the educational standpoint of like, how do you uh, think about curriculum? as well as the community standpoint. How do you, how do you figure out what you actually want you know, for this? Yeah. All too often, like I mentioned, it's you know typically the principal who approaches us, I wanna put a makerspace in, or the LSC, we wanna put a makerspace right. in, but they have no sort of, they haven't really gotten beyond that term. Right, right. But there is always some urgency, right? Oh, I think oh. that's the, that is the other component of it is, not only do we wanna build this, but we need to spend our money in the next 20 days yeah. uh, and do it right. We need to It always needs to be done right. Yes. Right. Uh, it's for the kids, you know? Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and we deal with that and we sort of muddle through it. Um, and there is no perfect way of 
sort of organizing that. I mean, unless you truly own it from cradle to grave and you're going to centrally manage it um, and, and, and do that from, from our perspective in central office, the best thing that we can do is provide guidance. And like, this is where, uh, and, and, and a lot of stories. So some of the times we, we relay stories of what other sites have done and where they have failed uh, because they didn't think about um, finding somebody who's going to be a champion of the space you know, and then be somebody who's going to be transferring knowledge to the other instructors in the space, as well as the, the students that will be, be in there. And then figuring out what that life cycle of the space is and um, the long-term vision of it. Because it, it's never, it, it's always, like you said, it needs to be spent in 20 days, the money, but right. they don't go into that. Let's think about it the long-term. What does it look like in one, three, five, ten years in that right. space? And then what are you trying to achieve, you know, ultimately there? Right, right, yeah, yeah, and uh, and and oftentimes there you're going to run into conflicting ideas of of mm-hmm. what you're trying to achieve, and and I think also somewhat problematically, how are you going to measure whether or not you're achieving that? Because mm-hmm. we get back into, and this is something that you know that that I, I work on here at, at DePaul, and you know for the last 11, 12 years now is how um, how do you quantify, let's say, key performance indicators without taking away from the creativity of the space. Sure. Right. Because there is a, a, a critical tension, which I think we've been dancing around a lot in this conversation of quantifying things. In other words, putting structure to things and then imposing too much structure on things in such a way that you might be collecting more data, but that the, the process of you collecting the data is changing the way the space works and people operate in the space in perhaps a negative way, you mm-hmm. know? So for instance, um, you know, I've got some key performance indicators sitting behind me here on a, a whiteboard. Um, and one is, uh, you know, we want, uh, you know, additional attendance this year of, of, of uh, people who come to our space. And there are ways that we could go about measuring that Mm-hmm. And doing that, that could be negative to the community feel of the space um, or safety, right? Creating too many policies that makes the space almost impossible to uh, for anything to go wrong, but almost impossible for anything any creative to happen too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's very interesting that um, that you guys are kind of exploring that same space as well. Uh, I don't know yeah. if we're, we're going to have as much uh, flexibility. Well, we might have more flexibility if it's if the space isn't advertised as, as much. Like the spaces that I think are more popular in CPS have more more eyes on them as being sort of showcase spaces, and then maybe can't have can't go as far as spaces that are more like the secretive, secluded makerspace that nobody really knows about except for the folks in the community. Um, yeah. But I mean, like for 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 like your space, yeah, it's that that same thing that we that i have to sort of deal with on 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 my side is you know figuring out what what those kpis what those slas are going to be for that particular space what what are what the growth potential is to report that to senior leadership so that way they get their two or three lines of whatever is meaningful for them for for growth or that you're meeting your goals and then you can also ask for funding you know based on you know whatever formula you come up with for for meeting these things but um not becoming too oppressive and um right you know, on, on, you know of collect you know like i have to collect this data you can't you can't make anything right now because i'm collecting this data kind of thing like and, right 
And I, you know, really it, it's tough. There's no easy way of doing it. I think, it, oh. I think a lot of it though is creating or thinking of thinking of being uh, thinking of creative ways of collecting data, but also creative ways of measuring it, you know? Right. And, and I think also encouraging people and allowing them to live in a little bit of uncertainty, mm-hmm. you know, we, that, that we can't get a complete picture of, of everything, but look at all of the cool stories coming out of this space. Right. Yeah. But it, that, yeah. it comes back to that. You know, it's the same, same <laughs> issue that I, I have with uh, like in my, my own project, I'm, uh, I'm making this whole thing much easier for the people in facilities to, uh, you know, with all my, my consolidation of servers uh, and everything. Yeah. And uh, my my chief comes to me and he's like, uh, in, a, in a meeting, we're talking about uh, success of my project. And he's like, I need to be able to quantify what success is. And I'm like, well, right. it's easier for people to access these things. They've never had visibility. So yeah. he's like, well, how do we quantify that? And I'm like, well, I can get a bunch of sound bites from people saying that it's now easier right. to see it. They can look at 25 sites a day versus one or two. He's like, well, but we need a way of tracking that. I'm like, I have no way to figure out how I'm going to track that metric. Right. They've never been right. able to even think about even being able to do this. Now, all of a sudden, like some it's, it's like all of a sudden, like a Jetsons card, like flew out of the sky. And it's like, how does right. your mind wrap yourself around what you're seeing in front of you? you know? Right. So it's, it's tough, you know? Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's in a very new space right now where, um, you, you know, convincing people of these things is, it can be a challenge, um, but you, you try nonetheless. So I want to be cognizant of time as well, because sure. I've pushed you well on your boundary here. And so I got like, I've got one final question sure. and then um, maybe we'll wrap it up. And it's related to what we've been talking about um, quite directly, really. I mean, because you've been involved with CPS for so long and, and you're working on this makerspace, you know, kind of um, thing as well there. And, and technology, where do you see technology and like, you know, computer science and makerspaces going in the next three to five years in Chicago public schools? Interesting question. Um, I think I can talk about this because it was released in the budget, but um, uh, starting this year is the production run of what's called our technology modernization act or technology modernization pro- project, which is, I believe, a three-year cycle mm-hmm. that they we've just completed pilot, a two-stage pilot on, where we're deploying new technology assets out to the district. Um, so basically, I think there's 130 schools this coming year, this coming school year, which starts next week. Jeez, help me. Uh, it's going to be fun. And uh, mm-hmm. they're going to be going through assessing the state of the current technology assets that are there uh, the way I understand it is if they're off off of warranty, they'll be um, refurbished or sorry, they'll be taken, recycled and then replaced with new assets. Um, and the school, I think, has some discretion into which type of device, you know, they're going to get Apple devices, Windows devices or Chromebooks or something to that sense. And then there's also a, tech, a training component that comes into it from both teaching and learning, as well as uh, we have some tech trainers um, on the CPS, on the IT side that come in to sort of train people on this is the actual device and how to use it. And then the teaching and learning people, this is how you incorporate it into your curriculum. So like what is possible from that that vantage point? Um, So I think in the three to five year term, it's sort of seeing how, you know, technology modernization program sort of pans out. one key thing for us is budget so 
whether or not we'll get budget again for this for next year to be able to continue on and then continue on through the entire cycle and make it through the district. Mm-hmm. And then I think beyond that is sort of once we've bridged that sort of digital divide at the school level, not at the home level, of where we have equitable access for all all students and staff members to technology, it's holistically as a district, what do we do with it? Um, so what, what happened is, I'm not sure if it's the same at DePaul, yeah. but... Uh, basically the abandonment of computer labs has happened in CPS over the past five years. You know, everybody, 10 years ago, everybody had to have multiple computer labs and that's where all the, you know, everybody would rent out the computer lab, cycle their classes through it. Um, Now with the, the uh, conversion, with all the emergence of all of the cheap laptops, you know, Chromebooks and things like that, that have come out there and everything's being sort of webified. Now it's, you could just, wheel in a cart of laptops or Chromebooks or whatnot into your classroom and then work, or you can afford to go one-to-one at your site. And then you have that, that stuff there, but you effectively, what I've seen in places that don't properly um, workshop it inside their, their schools, essentially what you're doing is you're trading the, the kid who has the cell phone underneath their desk playing on their cell phone to now a CPS sanctioned, school sanctioned devices on their desk that they can play with in right. front of everybody. Um, so I, I don't, you know, right. I, I see that there's going to be a lot more technology of whatever sort that's out there. Um, but I, I'm hoping that there's enough workshopping um, and training that's brought to the district to properly support and integrate that technology in the classroom. So it doesn't end up being a distraction. Um, and you know, a lot of times people ask, yeah. like, you know, isn't the, te- you know, can they tech, can the technology replace the teacher? And that's never going to be the case. The teacher is the focal point. And all uh, the technology is going to no. do is, you know, help bridge the divide and make, you know, what they're teaching, you know, a little bit more interactive or punch right. it up or make it easier for people to see, you know, if they can't see the blackboard at the other side of the room, they can maybe do a distributed right. videoing or, or whatever. But, um, yeah, right. I, I'm... I don't know. Like in three years, I see this this project barring funding, completing. We have a bunch of tech out there. The pessimist in me sees that there, the CPS doesn't have a lot of follow through. That it potentially falls on its face a little bit because there isn't a lot of that workshopping and and sort of making yeah. the technology relevant in the education space. But I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I really hope right. that. Each school adopts the technology, incorporates it fully into their curriculum for whatever purpose it can do, and uh, it becomes a, a huge benefit that nobody can do without. And then that shows to leadership that we, they have to keep funding technology yeah. investment in the schools. That's, that's yeah, always the problems with uh, well-funded or at least somewhat funded projects is sometimes the resources are both a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes with those additional resources comes uh, less... Um, focus a, a, a lesser focus on planning because you don't need to plan when you've got the resources to make mistakes you know well that's um, always that, that old adage more money comes more problems right so. <laughs> great place to end paul i appreciate yeah. you coming on to the podcast and um talking to everybody about what you do and excuse me i think there were some excellent connections there too between the internet of things and how people are doing makerspaces in in education and technology in education and, and you've got a, a wide kind of range of experiences with all that so um i just appreciate you coming out and talking to everybody about it about everything you do cool thank you so much for having me